Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the busy, busy world that we live in. It is unmasking the revolution, and we have really made great strides to unmasking this monster. It's been tough. It's been almost a year, if you can believe it. Time moves quickly. And now we do arrive at one of the principal moments um, that people do associate with the French Revolution. It is the sinquanon, you might say, of the revolution the St. Chester's Day Massacre, or as it's more commonly known, the Storming of the Bastille. Uh, with us, um, irreplaceably, we have with us, Monsieur. Good uh, good afternoon, Monsieur. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm so pleased to be uh, again on the air with you and talking about our favorite subject, I may say. Well, I, I don't know if it's our favorite subject, but it's a subject that has to be explored and uh, is the most Indeed. important subject Indeed. in the world. Um, Indeed, absolutely. So in the last episode, sir, we discussed, we set the stage for the Bastille. We discussed um, the, the mood of Paris at the time. We discussed the situation in France. But now I think we can actually get down to brass tacks, as they say. <laughs> but no pun intended. Uh, but now we arrive on, in July, may I say, in July 1789. It's a hot summer yes. after a cold and miserable spring. Absolutely. So, what's going on, sir? Well, actually, uh, we have referred to the weather in the previous episode, and I think it was worth mentioning this particular aspect because uh, it certainly played very much in the minds of all the people, whether they be uh, nobles or uh, bourgeois or from the uh, lower rank of, of society. Everybody was concerned there was no bread. We've talked about that. Now, I'd like to move to something else which is also playing a very important part in the actual uh, um, machination leading to the uh, storming of La Bastille. And yes. there are two elements, I think, which are important. The first major element was the move made by the king. The king decided to assemble or amass all his troops around Paris. He was not feeling so secure. He didn't know. He knew the situation was getting extremely tense. We know that uh, we've seen in the past during our previous episodes that uh, riots were taking place throughout France in the major cities, but also in the countryside. There were many problems and uh, people, because of the hunger issue, people yes. were changing their moods and uh, it was not easy to control the population. So, the, the king had to do something, he, he felt very insecure. So as a result, he decided to bring some troops uh, around Paris, but he knew that the troops are not so faithful either because uh, yes. um, due to uh, the change in uh, mentality, due to the fact that uh, the National Guards, for example, would sympathize very much with the rioters, it was not an easy thing. So coming back to the bread issue, Yes. Um, we have some accounts that are very precise about that, and the bread which was sold in Paris was a very low, very bad quality, and it was uh, earthy. You know that it was. Um, it has a, a very earth, earthy taste. Do you know what I mean? Oh, uh, you mean it's black? Yeah, it was. Uh, and apparently, the the 
people were queuing up to get some uh, at the bakers to get some bread and couldn't they couldn't get much because the bread was missing and the bread which was sold was a very low standard and as a result people would get sick as well you know they would have pain uh, stomach pains because yes. of the quality of the bread you see the bread and had uh, like uh, cheap fillers in it like dust and things like that yes absolutely because it was mixed with other substances mm. and it would bring some uh, throat um, inflammation as well if i if i remember well so all in all all in all it was very difficult and the king tried to import, as I'm telling you, he tried to import grains, but unfortunately that was not sufficient. Now, on top of that, you remember we re referred to that particular uh, episode as well, where you have one guy who's uh, very well known, the Duke of Orleans, yes. who has been plotting to grab all of the, all, all of the seeds um, available in France to create some form of famine. And by doing that, he knows that he will have a good command of the French situation. Being extremely rich, for him, that was not a problem. He had his own plan, and the, a plan which was based on very sim, uh, very simple uh, logic, you see. Because uh, by creating this famine, people uh, probably would, will, will not trust the government, you see. I think that was the idea by creating this famine people will say oh the king and the government are not able to provide us with the, the uh, necessary food we need so yes. why should we trust them you see and, and hunger was about to convince people to fight the king because they do not get what they want and you know as we said before the economy the bourbons economy was was moral in the sense that the king was supposed to feed his people and he was be considered as the father of the land because he was the nourishing uh, you know king so if the duke d'orléans can change this particular attitude is going to uh, you know um make a point against the king and because Indeed. he wants to replace him as our old friend malachi martin god rest his soul father malachi martin used to say this has the hoof prints of the goat all over it because the the sort the pain that's dealt by holding back the grain is not only effective in causing a revolution it's it's effective to cause suffering which is what satan wishes so i don't mean to keep bringing up the devil but as you describe these events they all have such a negative impact on so many different groups of people they're hurting everybody everybody even the duke of orleans was losing money as he was buying this grain but it was less than it was it was an acceptable loss for him but there was nobody who benefited it was all pain and all suffering I definitely agree with you. I would like to bring a caveat, however, because at the start, as we discussed earlier on, the Duke of Orleans was very much profit-minded, and he yes. knew that he was making a, a very clever bet in the sense that if you can grab all the grains, you're going to create a shortage. Now, afterwards, people will have to buy because they want to eat. So they will have to buy what you've got. So as a result, it's going to bring higher price. He will, he will, uh, he will uh, be able to sell his, his uh, commodity at a much higher price. And this is what he did, actually, you see. And so, but it was an extremely complicated, very simple on the, on the one hand, very complicated on the other. The idea was to try and bring the, the, the first, grab as much grain as you can, 
He started that operation in, in July 1788, just one year before the Bastille event. He started it, if I'm not mistaken, in July 1788. So he had, he had a, 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 a personal agent who was a stockbroker, uh, <laughs> who was, whose name is something like, I think his name was Pinet. He was on the stock. He was working on the stock exchange, and he he had um, a planned uh, something which was Machiavell Machiavellian, you know, mm. in the sense that um, he would ask people for money to, but he didn't say to them the reason for for the for lending the money. He would say to them, "If you give me one thousand acres, for example, I will return it in three months." Oh yeah. It's a standard stock market. Yeah, it's an inside yeah. trading scam. We want to invest in this business. I don't know. Don't ask. Don't worry. Just give me three million. You'll get six back. Don't worry. It exactly. fell off the back of a truck. Fell off the and back those, of a truck. And those who didn't want to, uh, or those who wanted to know the reason why uh, they would give him the money, were not supposed. Were not taken on board. So oh, it's only those who broken. were sufficiently stupid to to get. To give the money, who would be getting the returns afterwards? But it turned out that the plan didn't work out as well as he had planned, and in the end, this guy disappeared and he was killed, and we didn't know why. And it appeared in the news that apparently, you know, just like the uh, financial scandals today, where you see a banker who suddenly falls from the uh, from one of the skyscrapers or helicopters. Why? Yeah, bankers have a bad habit of falling out of their helicopters. They, they should wear their seatbelts. So you see, and um, so um, who was to blame here? Certainly not the this uh, Pinay. He was only an agent. He was the oh. agent of the Duke. And uh, this is something which I'm not uh, making up. You can find it in some books, like the famous uh, book by Montjoie. Montjoie is a French uh, royal author who talks about these things. So I think, so the idea again, just uh, to summarize this, so you make a shortage of grain, then you will uh, the the populace will suffer a lot because they have nothing to eat. Sir, they have nothing, nothing to eat, as you say, nothing to and nothing to look forward to, except maybe more evil looks.
these grains and afterwards uh, these grains have been stored in England uh, through the uh, East Indian uh, company you know the Brit British East Indian company and uh, they oh yes they had they trained such beautiful minds like Jeremy Bentham Yes, absolutely, yeah. and you know, they, they, they were, it, was, it, it was replete with spies, you know, and um, so they, 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 this company would ship all the French grains offshore, uh, not to London actually, not to England, but to the British Isles, to the Channel Islands of Guernsey and Jer Jersey, you see, because they didn't want to, uh, people to know what was going on. I'm, and, I'm curious, sir. I think this is a wonderful opportunity to introduce a word to some people, and that's etymology, uh, where words come from. Do you know where uh, the word thugs originates, sir? The, I have no it, idea. It comes from India, actually. There were a group oh, of really? people known as thugis, and they were a mm. basically a demon cult that would go around robbing people and beating them for the sake of it. Now, as I've looked into the East India Company, sir, there are rumors um, but it seems to fit the bill, so this is why I'm mentioning it, that the first British, uh, let's say, um, traders or merchants that went over to India who founded the East India Company, they encountered a diabolical cult, and they made a deal mm. with this cult. They said, all right, if Satan or if this demon that you worship and has power, um, I'll mention briefly a, a story, um, the, then we'll give money to it. And this group, sir, was, so the rumor goes, and I'm not substantiating it, but it's worth mentioning because you won't hear it anywhere else probably. The East India Company men, therefore, became initiated in demonism, and their company thrived, and they returned back. And if you look at all the evil that began, sir, it seems to come like tentacles out of this East India Company, which it started off as just a venture to get tea and spices, but I think it became something far more comprehensive. It eventually almost ran the entire British Empire, much like yes. uh, certain trading houses, like Goldman Sachs, dare I say, run the world today. Yes. yes, it was an intelligence uh, plot as well. You know that, yes. that through through the uh, these uh, ships, they yes. were able to see what was going on throughout the world, and they were able to control the world. But so it's an uncanny. This little, yeah, yes, uncanny. very uncanny. Uncanny. The, the idea here is very interesting because the Duke of Orleans created the shortage, then brought, uh, had the, uh, sh the grain shipped to uh, the Jersey uh, Channel Island. And afterwards, afterwards, who would be blamed for the shortage of grain? Certainly not him. But, oh, who, but of course, Lomini de Brienne was the uh, current, uh, the, uh, the incumbent uh, finance minister, and of course, uh, also the king and oh, the government, of course, was a king. Monsieur le Boulanger. King. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. absolutely. That's what the, the king, yeah, Mr. Brad. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the king and the government would be accused eh, um, for this particular disaster, although they had nothing to do with it and they were not even aware of it. And in the, in the periodicals at the time, they were accusing the aristocrats and the courts for um, creating this shortage of bread. They were talking about the monopolizers, you know, the, the grain snatchers, you know. And so it, all the blame was put on the king who had nothing to do with it again. So again, the rumors, you know, the rumors and the false rumors accusing the king, king to smear the reputation of the king. You see? And oh, think, it's absolutely, uh, yeah. It's, it's, absolutely it's, clear. it's, it's disgusting, isn't and it? And what gall, what gall Philip must have had 
to sit there and listen to these complaints the king might have say, what are we going to do about the bread? What are we going to do about this? And all the time knowing that he was the one behind it, that smarmy SOB. I mean, it's just, it makes it makes you just spit up in anger. So you see, and as a result, the population was uh, going to loot uh, all the marketplaces because they wanted to have something to eat because the, the, you know, the, the populace would live on, a, on a, just a loaf of bread a day. They wouldn't have much else to eat and onions and things like that. And if I'm not mistaken, there were the, as I was telling you, in the suburbs of Paris, like in the Saint Antoine suburbs, you had priests who were uh, providing soups uh, made yeah. of onions, water, onions, and uh, very simple things like that to, to, you know, to try and uh, alleviate the suffering of the population. I've, met, I've read several accounts of the diet of the everyday Parisian up, up during this period of time up into the revolution. And I noticed there's differing accounts. Um, some sources seem to say that although the people didn't have much money, they actually had fairly rich soups, like the potage wow. à la Jacobin, which I guess yeah. had like cheese uh, and... Yeah, but you see the vegetables in particular were extremely, extremely expensive uh-huh. during that period. And the populace would not have any money to buy the, um, the, the vegetables, you see. So they would have onions and they would have very, very simple meal, you know. Uh, turnips, perhaps. But, things so, like that. Like in Brittany, they had their pancakes, special spank pancakes, uh, uh, buckwheat pancakes, and they had, oh, you know, yeah, things like that. Would the everyday person's diet then just be plain bread? Would they have butter with it or oil? Or would they just yes, absolutely. Bread? Very, very simple things like that. Yes, unfortunately, yes, it was very difficult. I can see uh, that. And yeah, yeah. And I'm sure I'm sure what got them really over the edge was the gold uh, pounds in a queue that the Duke of Orleans agents were sprinkling around, getting the to go, exactly. you know, storm the bakery. Exactly, exactly. So that was the Fermin conspiracy I wanted to talk about because I think uh, even if the weather was very, very harsh, on top of that, you had some people think scheming horrible mm. things against the population. It's it's absolutely atrocious. From understand. every angle, yeah. From yes. every angle, it's atrocious. That you have Mesmer coming from the psychological medical angle, corrupting that. You have Cagliostro leading his cabal of demon worshippers around, perhaps connected with the diabolic East India Company. From every angle, you add starvation, occult, diabolism, fear, and as you mentioned, that the great fear that was building slowly being stoked like a large fire. Um, you had all these things. There was nothing positive. Unfortunately, no. No. But also, but at the same time, don't forget that Paris was the the capital of France and one of the most admired cities in the in the world. At capital the of time, Europe, really. Of Europe, and you would have people coming from the states, as you know, but also from all from all uh, walks of life coming to Paris, and particularly from all the major cities that would come to Paris, and they would admire. Actually, they would admire the. The, 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 the bustling city, you know? Yes. Despite the weather, you would have some people coming and enjoying, like you had, uh, I think it's, uh, um, I think there was a British, uh, a British author, was it? Yes. Uh, Adam uh, Young, what's his name? Yes, Arthur, yes. Young? Arthur, Arthur Young. Young. Arthur Young came to Paris, uh, oh, not to Paris, he came to France uh, on, on horseback, if I'm not mistaken. And he would go and visit the south of France, and he would visit plenty of cities. 
and he admired, actually, he admired the way of life of the French, and he thought that they were living, they were much better off um, than the, his uh, citizens in, in, in England. So true, and this Arthur Young is an invaluable source of information about court life, city life, exactly. industrial life. Peasant's life as well. Yes. Peasant life. And he went to places where nobody else had been, uh, well, had, had visited, so to speak. Yeah, we're setting the stage now. We have yes. uh, the climatological disaster. We have the conspiracies playing out. Now let's talk about this old brick building in the center of Paris left over from the Hundred Years' War, really. Hola, queridos amigos. Este es un breve anuncio para todos aquellos en la audiencia que habla o se siente más cómoda con el idioma español. Muchas gracias por su audiencia y apoyo. Estamos en proceso de crear varios episodios para los oyentes de habla española. Me complace decirlo para los miembros. Es importante tener en cuenta que esta organización, la Unión de Círculos Legítimos de Francia, de la que somos solo un delegado, tiene un servicio en español muy sensible y activo. Y por supuesto, su majestad más cristiana comparte personalmente la rica cultura española, al igual que su maravillosa esposa venezolana. Recuerde, nuestro mensaje es el mismo, ya sea en inglés, francés, español o chino. Buscamos la justicia, el estado de derecho, la seguridad económica, el apoyo a la familia, la difusión de las enseñanzas de nuestra Santa Madre Iglesia en todos los aspectos de la sociedad. Buscamos devolver a su trono al Hijo Mayor de la Iglesia. Dios los bendiga a todos. Um, how was this? Yes, this place that was used. I, I don't. I, I would describe it maybe as a, almost like a police station towards the end, with the also with the um, the task. I believe so. I've read. Whenever the royal family came to Paris, it was from the Bastille that they would fire a salute, like a number of cannons. Well, say, oh. you know, this is interesting as well because the one of the main point of contention for the populace was the cannons that was that were placed on top of the of the towers. You see, yes. there were eight towers, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly yes, there were so. Eight towers. Uh, for, uh, on that on that particular building, that the the walls were two or three meters thick. Yes, you know? there must have been. I think they were about twenty four meters high. So that was a very very huge building. It's a castle. Yeah, it was a castle, and you could see from all over the place in Paris. You see, yes. And uh, the Marquis, the the, the Sade, the Comte de Sade, the Marquis <laughs> de Sade, could uh, when had a, a little window, and and it could watch what was going on because oh. the prisons actually the the cells were in the towers i think there were five stories you know and the that's idea, where you got all the cells yeah. the idea uh, of the market of, side peeping out of the window is enough to did. make you sick yes and he, and he was shouting all the time at oh. the passers-by <sighs> he was totally irate you know all the time oh. and he could see what was going on in, in the bustling street of uh, saint antoine where he could see the horse-drawn carriages he could see the beggars he could see uh, you know all the activity going on with the shopkeepers and you know and the uh, street merchants and the street vendors water water uh, 
merchants, you know, they were yeah. selling water in the street, of course, at the time. And you could have all, all sorts of uh, activity, like you could have, uh, you know, the tooth, uh, tooth pullers, you know, or teeth, you know, tooth pullers. Oh, yeah, this uh, is... And, Yes, <laughs> because I happened to have read something on that, and uh, they were very busy at the time, you know. <laughs> and all of them shouting out their like uh, their products. So buy some water, pull your teeth. Yes, buy exactly. Teeth. And it was when it was uh, freezing cold, you know, and stone cold like that, and there was snow. Now the carriage would sometime slide and and break. Now there was a special rule at the time. Um, if, for example, there was an accident uh, yes. caused by a carriage, okay? Now, consider the carriage has four wheels, two at the front, two at the back. Yes. Now, if you, are, if you happen to be struck or hit by the front wheels, you cannot claim anything. If you are struck by the large wheels, it's, it's or rather, if you, are, if you are hit by the large wheels at the back, you cannot claim anything back, it's your fault. But if you are hit by the front wheels, you can claim something back. It's like yeah. automotive these collision. Were the rules. These, yeah. Yeah, these, these were the rules at the time. And the coachman, you know, uh, because it was so cold, uh, they, they brought... They, they need to, need to be warm. Yes. To be warm, you know. So you had these uh, huge uh, fires in the street because it was so cold. And you would have some traffic jams and you would have some carriages, you know, uh, um, causing problems. And yes. you would ever be, and there was no traffic lights, of course, and oh. everybody was going in all directions. So the Avenue Saint Antoine must, must have been very busy. And I know that you were some. There, there, ha there have been some accounts by aristocrats who were watching and describing, like uh, other historians before that, uh, that particular street because it's yeah. one of the it was one of the main avenues actually. I'm curious, um, was it paved, sir, at this time? With stone. Was it paved? Yeah, was Sorry? it paved with stone? Oh, that's a very good question. I do not know. I have not read anything about that. I do not whether it was paid, painted. Painted, you mean? Oh, no, like paved with stone on the ground instead of a dirt road. Was it a stone road or a dirt road? Oh, you had cobblestones. Oh, you, you had cobblestones. Yeah. If yeah. you go back to, if you, um, if you go today to the center of Paris in the Avenue, in the Boulevard Saint Germain, there's a there's a very small cobble street uh, which is called the Passage du Commerce. I know that place very well, actually. That's where you used to, you, you still have a restaurant. I'm not going to make any advertisement advertisement here, but it's that this is the place where they used to have les cordeliers, and you know the cordeliers. Oh. This is the convent where it all started, really, with the Jacobins Club. You had the Cordelier Club. It was located there, and that's still they have left the, the cobblestones. So there are small uh, cobblestones that are about, uh, let's say, 20 uh, centimeters uh, large. Uh, mm. It's a square, you know, they are squared. And, uh, and, um, and, but the street, the street is not flat. Really? You know, it's, it's uh, curved. Oh, you know what oh I mean? so in the middle there's a rise, so things go off like... So boom. it's very easy to fall, very easy yes. to fall. Even today, if you walk on that, if it's slippery, you know, if, if for some reason, if the weather has not, if, if it has been snowing or if uh, for some other reasons uh, it's slippery, well, you easily fall, so there must have been plenty of falls. And actually, in the literature, they describe these things, you see. That's so true. Walking on cobblestones is murder. It's 
horrible. It hurts your legs. It's slippery. We can only imagine what this winter of like 1789 must have been like then with just yes. slip and slide almost. Exactly. So it was very dangerous, honestly, very dangerous. So to come back to the Bastille uh, Castle, mm. it was very thick, very, very strong sound. Uh, and uh, there to last, and it lasted uh, 400 years or something like that. I, I Longer, maybe more or less 400 years and uh, at one point I know that Henry IV brought his uh, valuable uh, collections uh, inside to protect it you see with his uh, Ministry of Finance study he decided to do that and then afterward you had very famous uh, um, people were incarcerated like under Louis the the Fourteenth. you had the, the uh, the the guy um, his name man in the iron mask they say well, absolutely, yes, as well. And you had uh, all these, uh, all the barons. So, you know, if you were happened to be uh, jailed, it's, it's because you were very, very famous, but you were... The celebrity prison. The, well, celebrity one? prison. Like, like, yeah, I was referring to the finance minister, Fouquet. You've heard about him. Oh, yes, oh, early on. The and superintendent. Or even and the, the, during, this is, we should talk about two things in the future. God give us the time. Um, I think one would be the affair of the poisons under Louis the Fourteenth, um, which would Very be good, yes. La Boisson, I think was her name, the witch. Yes, absolutely. There was yes, yes. witchcraft, literal witchcraft. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And there was also um, also we could talk about um, in France during this time. Uh, well, the, the what was I going to say? Okay. The, Oh, I'm sorry. I, the surintendant Fouquet is a very interesting story. Oh, he, was, he wanted to be greater too. than the king, and he he got uh, he got into shady dealings, and then the the king crushed him totally. Yeah. And then he was he was sent to a prison in the south in the southeast of France and near in the Alps, and he never saw the day the, the light of the day again you, know, you might was... say he had said everything that he had to say uh, but yes, in regards yes. in regards to sir um the man in the iron mask any reading of the very early revolution i'm talking about the first days of it this name seems to pop up it's a it's a source of intrigue it, it has the hand of the conspiracy of the duke on it if you ask me but the and the man in the iron mask um i would like to talk about one day because it seems like an anti-royal device the first one of them was this idea yes. this nameless yes. person was being held illegally by the king who could and it could yes. never be proven proven because they didn't yes. know who it was exactly exactly uh, we will have to record a whole uh, episode on that yes so so again uh, very famous uh, hmm, um, persons were jailed there like Voltaire I said uh, yes. before and uh, Fouquet this is a very very important person before he was sent uh, somewhere else Voltaire of course uh, we have to mention him because he was uh, he was so impertinent you see uh, oh, the way he talked uh, and he, 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 was, he, was, he was a rascal as well. Yeah, he made his money uh, defrauding the lottery in France. That's how he got rich. Was, he did, you know, absolutely, absolutely. There's your philosophy for you. Alone, but he, yeah, he made his money in, with the lotteries and also with the soldiers, you know, with the army. Yes, um, yes. Again, this one would sell uh, uh, not necessarily uh, cardboard mm. soles for the shoes of the soldiers, but things like that. And it's like every were, other great so-called progressive. They're all for humanity, all for equality. And then you lift the cover a bit, you lift the mask a bit, and what do you find? Someone who's really a worm, a cylindrate, someone without a spine. Exactly. Yes. And you know where, finally, Voltaire was buried in the Pantheon, you know? Oh. The Pantheon, which is the Republic Church. 
Well, uh, the great man. You know that Rousseau and uh, Voltaire are buried now in the Pantheon, the Pantheon? I have no doubt. I mean, isn't it French law now that every every third week Macron has to go down there and pray to Voltaire? Isn't that Oh, the, I didn't know that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm, I'm kidding. intrigued. I didn't <laughs> know that. But anyway, Voltaire is a fa by Republican standards, Voltaire is one of the father of the of the Republican uh, uh, regime. Uh, As Carlyle, and there are bo both of them are buried in the Pantheon. You see, yeah. As Carlyle, the Scottish historian who I have mixed reviews on, but Carlyle said of Voltaire, he was the god of the revolution, comma such god as it was fit for. Yes, I agree with, yeah, with that yeah. statement because yeah. he. He was, he was a, a, again, that's another villain, you see. Yes. Okay, he had some very intelligent writings, but not everybody agreed with him, but uh, he was he was perfidious. He was, he, he, would, he would never, uh, if, he, if he didn't like somebody, he would kill him, you know, uh, yes. with his words. He if would you were to ask me, who, who is the true revolutionary, who is truly evil? Yes, I would say maybe the Duke, uh, Duke of Orléans, Philippe Egalité, but before then, I would point straight at Voltaire. It's people like him who rot away the goodness of a society, leaving it open for the conspiracies. They're like termites. Well, there are. Well, they belong to the devil. Yes, they do. They? And, and that's. And you see, by the end of his days, you know, Voltaire, who was living in a very small village, wanted to appear as the benevolent king of that village, and he would employ not thousands, but at, it was a very small village at the start. And then in, at the end, there must have been something like 1,000 people in, living in that village, Village, and they were all um, being paid by Voltaire. So he wanted to have that reputation. And if you look at his uh, grave, it's very interesting. I saw that the other day, and there was a documentary on him. I didn't have the time to watch it. But I saw at the end, they showed... The, uh, the the chapel, not the chapel, the, the church where he was buried. And actually, his tomb is just like a pyramid. He wanted oh. to have a pyramid. Isn't that interesting? Well, so it's a pyramid, honestly. It's like it's a tomb in the form of a pyramid. So, yeah, you know, you know what village, do you think of that? Isn't it funny, sir, how, and, you know, Bentham did this as well. He started a village. They were cults, sir. They were like cult centers. Definitely. Yeah, they Definitely. were not. Yeah, Bentham, and then there was. The, another group of people, the, the uh, Nice community, where John Noyes, the Noyes community, where they practiced, uh, you know, wife swapping and all these sorts of, you know, sexual things. It always comes down to the sex with the revolutionaries. There's always weird sex involved in the end. Well, Voltaire uh, had many mistresses as he, well. He, so yeah. he had a, he had a d debauched life. He was also very close with the king of Prussia. Oh, I didn't know, I didn't know that. As Frederick was II, he? actually. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Who was also a Freemason, wasn't he? Who was also one of the leading Freemasons. Yeah. But it goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Indeed. Not a lot.
are two elements, I think, which are important. The first major element was the move made by the king. The king decided to assemble or amass all his troops around Paris. He was not feeling so secure. He didn't know. He knew the situation was getting extremely tense. We know that uh, we've seen in the past during our previous episodes that uh, riots were taking place throughout France in the major cities, but also in, in the countryside. There were many problems and uh, people, because of the hunger issue, people yes. were changing their moods and uh, it was not easy to control the population. So the, the king had to do something. He, he felt very insecure. So as a result, he decided to bring some troops uh, around Paris. But he knew that the troops are not so faithful either because uh, yes. um, due to uh, the change in uh, mentality, due to the fact that uh, the National Guards, for example, would sympathize very much with the rioters, it was not an easy thing to do. So he decided to bring closer to Paris, some troops, and closer to Versailles as well, some troops which would be more faithful. So as a result, he would uh, select troops, or he, he didn't necessarily do it himself, but of course, of course through his uh, commander-in-chief, they would decide to bring some uh, foreign regiments, which would be um, there in case of trouble. Now, the official reason was that the king wanted to make sure that there wouldn't be any trouble, and he wanted to reassure the citizens, of the, as he said, as the, it used to be said, the good citizens of the city of Paris. Oh. In fact, we know that uh, Paris Not many good citizens there. Sorry? Oh, not many good citizens at the time. No, not many good citizens, <laughs> but the usual, uh, the, usual uh, the usual wording was to say that it was the good city of Paris. Mm. Uh, in, fa in fact, we remember that Louis XIV decided to erect to to enlarge Versailles, particularly for that reason, because he was not so sure about the actual mood of the Parisians. But um, anyway, so the, the king decided to bring all these troops around Paris. Now, sir, and this uh, when, the, when the troops are summoned, this is, I think, one of the most nuanced and complicated aspects of the revolution, which a, a casual observer might gloss over and lose the key points. Now, in France at this time, the the National Guard, so-called National Guard that was created or commanded by the Marquis de Lafayette, this had not formed yet. So as far as I understand, you had two principal bodies of troops in Paris at the time. One would be the Guard Francais, the French Guard, and the other would be the Guard uh, Swiss. It, those would be exactly. the two principal. Exactly. exactly. And now, so... Actually... Actually, yeah. this very, you mentioned the word Swiss, and this is very important, as you will see a bit later. Indeed. Now, uh, this is the first uh, move on our chessboard, if I may say, because the king is doing that particular move, and he's got his own reasons to do that. Now, now when the king brought in foreign troops, sir, they were, we say they're, or people say they're German, but in reality, they would be French subjects from like Alsace and Lorraine, correct? That the eastern right, part. That, that's, yeah, from Lorraine in particular. And actually, yeah. the Prince of Lambesque, uh, who was controlling the troops near the Place de Vendôme, the Vendôme courtyard, which is so famous today, um, was, was from Lorraine himself. So when but people had some, yeah, well, actually, you had some Austrian. Austrians, Prussians, and mainly, okay, you're right, Lorraine people and Swiss uh, people as well. Yeah. In that, in these are foreign regiments, and of course, most of them didn't speak French, so yeah. they were more faithful to the king, and they were not 
and uh, they were less likely to be contaminated by the new um, secular religion, which was uh, moving forward. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Paris at this time was a political Chernobyl. It was exposing <clears throat> and infecting everyone around it. But so the troops, when people say, my point was, they say, oh, those weren't really French troops. Nonsense. They were as French as anybody. They just were a, from a different part of France at the time. They weren't foreign oh, thugs oh. that the king brought yes. in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is another point which is worth mentioning now. So that was, as I'm saying, uh, uh, the way I see things, uh, I think that was the first major move, which, well, one of the major moves on the part of the king, which was about to trigger many things afterwards. Now, because of that, you remember that the National Assembly was assembled in Versailles. Yes. And all of a sudden, you had people like Mirabeau, who was enraged in a certain sense, who was so much keen to become a prime minister himself later on. That was his main hidden goal, as we saw in a previous episode about that guy. Now, he started um, presenting or tabling motions about the fear of the National Assembly of having the uh, the, the troops assembled so close to the place where they were delib deliberating. And actually, it took the example, it was not alone, but it took the example of the uh, assembly of, in Brittany, in the Wren Parliament, where the, oh. they, would never, uh, they would never make any decisions if the troops were close by. So in other words, they wanted, definitely, they wanted the troops to go away, to to be to retreat to some other places well, far from the national assembly because their point was to say that because the troops were so close they were they were feeling a little bit insecure oh. and they were not, they they felt not free to make the moves they wanted to make oh so naturally the, you know the burglar and the person robbing your house they didn't want the police there the police would interfere with their robbery Oh yes, exactly. This is a yeah. This is this is a trick on the part of the National Assembly, and Mirabeau was uh, heading this particular motion, which was su supported by everybody, of course. So, Nobody um, would test that, so they all accepted that, and they presented the motion to the king. But the king refused to move his his, uh, his army or troops because he said, rightly so, that he wanted to make sure that the citizens of Paris would be would feel safe. So he didn't want uh, actually to um, to do anything. Well, the what we can say here is that probably, from what I've been able to gather, it seems that uh, the king, under the influence of Marie Antoinette and the more conservative branch within the aristocracy around him, were preparing a coup d'etat. They were more or less, uh, they were intent, uh, and the natural assembly felt that as well. Everybody knew that something was going to happen. Monsieur, this is, this is incredible. This is revelatory. Um, I had two questions. So when did the States General declare themselves the National Assembly in regards to this? Because that's a key point. Well, actually, that, isn't, that, isn't that on the 23rd, I may be mistaken, of, of June, uh, when you had the Séance Royale, you know, where tennis the... Tennis Court Oath, yes. Yeah, yeah well, exactly, with the Tennis Court Oath. So, so in a way, the king, from his perspective, the Estates General had already gone rogue. They had already become exactly. something else. And, and now they're presenting him with this, this petition. And at the same time, um, as the, uh, the, how do you say, the Estates General had gone rogue, the, the Revayan affair had gone on in Paris. So there was, um, there was 
riots breaking out in Paris. There were people being killed. It wasn't as though everything was fine in Paris and the king was just preventing it. There was people, there were people dying. Take, for example, that very important suburb of our district of Saint-Antoine, Saint-Anthony, where the Bastille is located. You had something like 30,000 registered poor in that parish, only in that parish, and in the parishes, uh, parishes around that uh, district, you had plenty of other poor. So the thing is here, on the one hand, you have all these poor, and on the other hand, you have Freemasons who've got so much money. It has, been, um, it has been found that at the start of the French Revolution, the Grand, Grand Orient de France, that's, you know, the great, the grand love. The, law, yeah, the, the principal the Masonic organization. organization. Exactly. They had something like uh, uh, 20, 000, 20 million pounds in cash at the 20 start. 20 million livre? Yeah. Pounds? Yeah, oh exactly. God, 20 a... million pounds or a, a, a livre. That's and the money at, of the nation. And in, and in 1792, and I, I've looked at some records. I, I'm not making this up. I've looked at some records and they talk about that. And in 1782, that's not far later. They they had thirty. They had I think it was thirty million pounds available. So if you have so much money, and if you want to contaminate people, particularly if people are poor, you're going to bring give them some money, and they will certainly do what they want you want them to do. And this is this is what occurred with the Réveillon case. Yes. And I'm sure in Paris, you know, they were very active. The Orleans faction was very active distributing money. And Mirabeau said many times that, uh, in fact, with a little, little bit of money, you can have a very successful riot. Um, but that was just in passing. <laughs> that was just, just in passing, of course, yeah. It's, it's something you remark after dinner. It's, it... it seems that Louis as well uh, had intended with his uh, own uh, staff uh, to crush the National Assembly. Yes. And this is why, why he had assembled all these, troo these troops. But unfortunately, the problem which occurred is that the troops didn't come sufficiently quickly. And because the regiments was, were coming from from afar, yes. and it would have, it would have, they would have needed some, like um, another week before arriving all in Paris. And I must say, though, it's playing devil's advocate, sir. Um, I, I am nothing. I have nothing but respect for the king. He was a, a most excellent man, a man and a most excellent ruler. But it must be said that if he had wanted to, if the king had been a more bloodthirsty man. He could have, at, at many points, opened up offensives and really a few cannon shots. As Napoleon said, I think, a whiff of grape shot would have been enough. Yes, absolutely. Many times he could have done it, but he never wanted to do it. So yeah. the thing is here, you see, that we, the troops need at least one more week before arriving all in the city of Paris. And the problem is that time was of the essence. They didn't have enough time. And the other, the other problem was that if the troops were coming to... Um, to, uh, in scattered uh, battalions like that, they would they could easily be contaminated by the population, yes. and through the, well, you know, there were <clears throat> the, the people, particularly when they were when the troops were gathered in the Champ de Mars, uh, in the, this huge uh, esplanade, um, 
the the people who tried to come tried to come and talk to the soldiers to win their to win them over, and the constables were constantly uh, uh, checking uh, all the passersby and the whores who were around as well, trying to contaminate. You see the soldiers. Oh, of course. So it was uh, it was a very difficult game to play, and unfortunately for the king, it was not. Uh, an easy game, and he, he lost in that particular instance. So I'm surprised that the Duke of Orleans didn't have the whores pull his carriage like the Roman Emperor Elagabalus did. <laughs> yes. Now, yeah. uh, we, we, were, we were talking about the 8th of July. Now we move to the 11th. Yes. Now, on the 10th, or rather on the 10th and the 11th, uh, at that date, and there was a special Conseil de Dépêche in in the French um, kingdom, you, the king would have uh, meetings with his uh, main uh, ministers or councillors. So this is why it was called the dispatch councillors meeting. And yes. at that particular meeting, uh, Necker didn't uh, attend, uh, didn't sit. Now, um, Necker himself thought that the king would not do away with him because he thought that it, he was absolutely indispensable. But at the end of the meeting, uh, it, the, the king decided otherwise and, and uh, had a letter sent to Mr. Necker to leave the country because he no longer wanted his uh, advice. Notre vie défile en l'espace d'un soupir. Nos pleurs, nos peurs ne veulent plus rien dire. On s'accroche pourtant au fil de nos Actually, uh, some people thought that Necker could have been sent to jail. That was one uh, uh, one uh, possibility, but the king decided otherwise. And so he decided to have Necker sent away discreetly during the night. And that's exactly what Necker did. Necker had uh, not lunch, he had dinner with his wife. And during the night, they left on, on carriage, you know, they left for Switzerland. And yes. they, they managed to go to Switzerland. Uh, afterwards, unfortunately, the Necker was uh, returned to power because uh, the king couldn't do any otherwise. But uh, at that particular moment, he was sent away. And uh, then a new a ministry was uh, was uh, decided upon. A government, by, you might say, like a new well, government let's altogether. Say, let's say a new government. And... Uh, uh, so there, there's a change. There was a change of ministers, and uh, the king, under the influence of Marie Antoinette and the Duc de, 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 de 
his eldest Comte d'Artois. Uh, they decided to have a more conservative uh, government uh, uh, set in, into motion. The problem yes. is that this government only lasted five days. So, and uh, we don't even know who exactly was sent to which position because uh, we know about the main um, protagonists, shall I say, but we don't, do not know them all. We know that there was a new uh, ministry or government uh, with the, the uh, Baron, uh, who was prime minister, that was the Baron de Breteuil. He was the, the main, uh, well, let's say, more or less like a prime minister. And yes. the, um, the minister for the army uh, was a, a new one as well. And in that particular instance, it was uh, Louis decided to have a very well-known and with a high reputation uh, marshal, you know, the Maréchal de Breuil. Now, yes. that, was extremely famous and it was very popular among the, the troops and the, the officers. So that was a very good choice in itself. And loyal. Uh, well, loyal, yes and no, because I've read, but I am not sure whether I'm right, that apparently he was also a Freemason. Because oh I've read, read that the Prince de Breuil, le, le Prince de Breuil, the Prince of de Breuil, was registered as a Freemason. <laughs> But um, I have not been able to check whether we are talking about the same person as that marshal. It's nearly it one of the things I must say is for for myself, it's nearly unbelievable the extent to which the Freemasons had extended their influence. Well, it, I will, I will, yeah, I, I will give you some details in a minute about that. I would, if you don't mind, I just would like of, to of uh, draw the uh, great line, the, the major lines of the, about the government, and then we can uh, talk more precisely about the army. So in that particular ministry or government, you had this, uh, the prime minister, de Breteuil, and then you had the important ministry is that of the army, particularly at these, in these uh, very difficult times. And then afterwards, you had uh, other ministers that are not so important, uh, like uh, the uh, you have the, for the Navy, you had a certain guy who's called Laporte, uh, and I haven't heard much about that particular person, uh, but I'm not a historian by trade, so <laughs> maybe somebody else would be giving me you more details. But anyway, the most of the uh, ministers uh, were changed, uh, except for the uh, Maison du Roi. The Maison du Roi, there was the king's household. Yes. You know, they, this is very important. That's, uh, well, that's for, you know, for the household of the king, you know, like uh, the way he's going to eat and the ceremonies and all that. But that's, it's like that's the, in America, they'd call it the, the White House Chief of Staff. It's the person who manages it. Yes. yes, absolutely. And what is imp important from our own uh, perspective here is that you had on the one hand, the Ministry of, uh, uh, for the Army, that was Bret, uh, De Breuil, but then under him, the, command, the field commander, shall I say, was uh, Bisenval. Now, Bisenval was a Swiss as well, you know. He, he was also, he, I don't know, I think he was a Freemason, but uh, again, it's difficult because uh, we, we, would have, we would have to make some searches and uh, it's, I think that it would be reasonable, given their extent, to let us assume that he probably was influenced, if not, in fact, a member of the Lodge. I, exactly. But you see, it was uh, honorary as well to be a member of the Lodge if you were uh, uh, an aristocrat, you see. So there, I think it would be an interesting idea to, to talk a little bit about the army at the time, because uh, although... <clears throat> yes, sorry. Be because you see... Um, the army uh, had, was not was was uh, contained in the barracks, so to speak. You see, 
And for a while, for a long time, after the Seven Years' War, um, they were not, except for those who went to America, the, 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 the soldiers and the, the officers or the non-commissioned officers, everybody was staying in the barracks or in the, you know, and they were not engaged in violent combat and most of them were bored, I guess. So idle hands. Yeah, sorry, didn't get oh, Idle hands are the devil's tool. Well, in a certain sense, absolutely. So you see, there was a certain, I, I suppose, there must have been a certain appeal uh, because as I've told you previously, in, in almost all the uh, regiments, you had a lodge. And if the uh, aristocrat or the officer is not doing anything, he's staying in his barracks all the time, he gets bored. So in order to find some um, entertainment, shall I say, why not go and step in and look at what they are doing in the lodge? Or hop and down to the Palais Royal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very good. But the <laughs> Palais Royal was not a barrack, you know. It was... Okay. A, some, and there was something on its, on its own. But then, so it was very easy, apparently, to step in a lodge and have, you know, have the, uh, the, the meeting with some uh, masons and talk things over and socialize because these guys, these masons, would be very fond of socializing, you know, and uh, that was a very important point. And then all of a sudden, you know, you got... You, you have something to do, you see. If you were bored in the army, you had nothing to do. All of a sudden, you can find something to do. <laughs> and, uh, you're going to meet and you're going to talk and you're going to meet, for example, you can meet, I don't know, you can meet a, a venerable from the lodge, you know, who's going to impress you with his wisdom, you know, because it's, an, it's another universe, I guess. And oh, it's night really on the town. You, you go, you pick up a few whores at the Palais Royale, then you go down to the lodge and watch them summon up the devil. And then later in the night, you can kill some people. I mean, it's a perfect night. Not? Yes, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And you see that, so they would meet venerables or they could meet some orators and they would be impressed by their uh, oratory prowesses or you could have uh, meetings with the secretary of the lodge or the, I don't know, a treasurer who's uh, alleviating the, the poor, you know, because they, they pretend to alleviate the oh, poor. You might get a few golden cue if, even out of the deal. Yes. Yeah. And uh, you could also meet the master of ceremonies, you see. So all in all, it was a change, you know, maybe not necessarily a conversion, I think, <clears throat> on the part of these soldiers mm. or uh, these officers, should I, should I say, because in a certain way, uh, these uh, lodges would not accept anybody. They would accept people who would be of interest to them, you see. Actually, so yeah. people uh, who, with a good reputation, you know, and... Uh, uh, people who are going to uh, be good for the interests of the lodge, you see. Yes. And it's very interesting to notice that, uh, in fact, people like Napoleon, you know Napoleon? Napoleon once said that any soldier is like a Freemasonry. Uh, I, 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 I came across that particular citation by Napoleon that was very surprised. He, he said, by memory, he said something like that, that the, the soldier or the military is like a Freemasonry because uh, he has, he says about the soldiers that they have some form of intelligence so that they can recognize another Freemason wherever he is, you see, and they, and he will be able to find the, the, these Masons. So it's very interesting because Napoleon himself, we, we have, there's always been a doubt 
about whether he was a Mason or not. But his father was a Mason. His sister married a Mason. His brother married a Ma uh, also was a Mason. He was surrounded by Masons all the time. And he made that judgment about the Masons, you see. So I think it was interesting. But the main point here is that the contamination of the soldiers was uh, very important. And progressively, the, the main point I want to uh, convey here is the following one. Whether by, by, by joining a lodge like that, progressively these, um, these minds are corrupted mm -hmm. and they will no longer feel like serving the king. And we know that in the uh, higher ranks of the lodge, as we discussed earlier on, in the higher ranks, uh, the, you, would only, you would only be admitted in the higher ranks if you were devoted to Satan and not yes. to Christ, you see? And so... Progressively, you're going to be less loyal to the king and more loyal to the lodge. And unfortunately, that, that negative devotion, was, um, it was titillating at the time. I, it, that's from the records I see. People were excited about it. Oh, you're going to summon up Satan tonight. Wait for me. It's going to be so much fun. It's so exactly. rebellious. Yeah, it's... Exactly. it's, it's so so, the, the, so the, you know, the, 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 the loyalty of these officers changed. And although... It's true that some of these uh, officers uh, emigrated as well afterwards, but they remained Masons, you see. Yeah. And another, another specificity of Masons in these lodges is that they, are, they do away with uh, social ranks. We are all equals, you see. So as a result, you can, you, can, you can imagine that situation. You have, for example, a venerable from a lodge let's say a military lodge is venerable is that like a rank in masonry or something exactly. like a with a high uh, with a very high rank in the masonry yes. it could be some some it could only be a captain uh, outside in his regiment mm. then you see uh, it changes the uh, the rank you know what oh, i mean by that yeah but and inside the, he's equal to the duke of uh, d'orleans yeah. This is what I mean. This yeah. is what I mean. This is the idea. So as a result, there's a definite corruption. And it seems that uh, it, it played somehow, I think it played a very important role in the perception that all these soldiers, these officers, should I say, because most of them were officers, um, the, the way they looked at the, king, at, the, at the king, they no longer had any respect, you see, for, for the king. And this is... Uh, so the contamination, it started with the philosophers and then it went to the masonries and the, you know, Voltaire was a philosopher oh, to start and then afterwards he decided to join a lodge and then the philosophers, the Freemasons and the philosophers joined the same fight, uh, which was uh, really against Christ in the end, you see. But it was oh, absolutely. Not, uh, so, so it was, um, I think, very interesting to make that point. And when the revolution started, Half it is. I've, I've, I've read that half of all the regiments uh, were contaminated with the masons. You see, they were, you could find oh, them almost everywhere. They were ready, ready the for lodges. revolution, and in, 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 they were ready for revolution. And I believe in Paris, the the unit that was thoroughly corrupted and the principal target for months, months, months was the guard, French guards. Correct. That was their exactly, yeah. exactly. Yes. So the, these. Um, but it's extremely interesting to, to see that because I think it's a, a major point as well. It shows that the revolution, as we said previously, was not something spontaneous, but that 
on the other hand, but on, uh, conversely, it was extremely well prepared. And okay, we may say that I'm a conspirationist, you see, but uh, the evidence seems to prove that. Uh, although, of course, people, if you're a Freemason, you will say, oh no, this is not true, you are wrong, it didn't happen well, like they that. They publicly but the say evidence, that, I imagine. I that the evidence tilts uh, greatly in our favor when we say that. Because, Monsieur, uh, after the work we've done, if anyone, or after the clearly available evidence that's out there for anybody, if anybody thinks that this was not orchestrated, they're either really, they're either sympathetic to mass murder or they're absolutely insane. There is no way any reasonable person, and certainly no person who's listened to our program, could any, any longer say that the French Revolution was not manufactured. It was manufactured like a motorcycle. Exactly. You remember we talked previously about the Weissart case. Oh, yes. And was it in 1786, if my memory is not failing me, that in Frankfurt they decided to, kick, to they voted to kill Louis the 16th, you know, and I think... It was, uh, not the, in Frankfurt, it was in, um, it was Bavaria, I believe. In Bavaria, yeah. yeah. And they wanted to kill the, the, the queen, the, the king of, uh, uh, was it of Sweden? I think Gustav... I think Bavaria, the, it was the uh, King Ludwig, actually, I believe. It was one of oh, the Ludwigs yes. down in Bavaria. Well, yes. So, so you see, uh, it suddenly the Freemasons must have played a very important role. And uh, when the Duke d'Orléans, the Duke of Orleans, uh, was, at the, was really the grand commander of that uh, uh, he, he, uh, the secret society, uh, he was pulling almost all the strings to throw down the monarchy, you see. Yes. And uh, there are accounts, there are so many accounts that go in that direction that I'm sure it must be, there's some, some truth in it, you see. So again, I think the Freemasons um, as are a very important uh, point uh, to consider. They're so, a scourge in the hand of the devil, to be sure. And you make, I think from this, we can deduce one huge point, sir, and it's really kind of come together for me in our, in our wonderful conversations together, and it's that the revolution is never a spontaneous action of the people. Rather, it's a tiny segment of the elite that's key. The revolution always comes from a small group of the elite, not from the people or the masses. Always. But that's always. so I think, yeah, in every revolution, it's true. But that template was created in the French Revolution. There was another point as well concerning the army, which I think we should just uh, briefly talk, talk about. In 1781, I think, there was uh, an ordinance, uh, was it an edict? I don't know what you say in English for that, but which was uh, issued by a certain guy named Ségur. And it played an important part as well in the change of, of uh, mentality or mindset on the part of the officers, because in that particular ordinance, uh, uh, <clears throat> which was issued, the French officer candidates, you know, those who wanted to become officer, yes. no longer as before become officer as easily. Uh, they were required to have at least four generations of nobility. Four generations? Four generations of nobility, and that changed everything. I think that was, honestly, I think that was a very stupid uh, decision made by the ministry uh, uh, or by this person, uh, uh, because as a result, it stopped the social ladder, and people complained about that. And which that uh, which minister was this who orchestrated? Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, well, you see, 1781. Uh, who was the? Uh, I think I know it was the Marquis de Ségur. Uh, oh, yeah. 
response to that law. And I'm going to have to insert my own self right here. This is MC with the bittersweet announcement that we went long. Instead of the planned two-hour season finale for Unmasking the Revolution, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, dear all my friends, you're getting three hours. So the third and final installment of the finale for season one of Unmasking the Revolution, a little podcast for good brought to you by the Fleur de Lis Club, will be posted as planned this Sunday at 8 o'clock Pacific time, the 28th of July. This is a bonus, and it's a testament to how much we love Unmasking the Revolution here with you. The subject is awful, as I've said before, but the company's excellent. So hang tight. We'll see you this Sunday. Wonderful day, Lord's Day. And until then, be well. Be well with your friends, your loved ones, all of that. And we'll see you in just a little bit. God bless you all. Yeah.